0: assalamu alaikum everyone this is alman nusrat and
1: hey everyone assalamu alaikum this is nihal khan what's going on
0: you are listening to faith
1: Faith and fine print
0: Print. right we're online right now our first uh remote interview that we that we're having uh nihal actually did one before but this is the first time we're doing it together a group effort and uh that's why our intro was out of sync (laughs) and uh yeah but we a for effort so um, we're here, I'm in Naugatuck, in Connecticut, and Nihal's in Hartford, and uh, we have a special guest joining us from Chicago, and I'm really excited, uh, I love this subject matter, it's something I'm really passionate about, I really care about, um, so Nahal, why don't you introduce us, Michelle?
1: Yeah, um, you know, today's subject is going to be on mental health and Islam, and how mental health is understood. And living in the current age that we are in, mental health is an important topic that has to be broached. Many of us are locked in our homes currently um, due to the current quarantine situation and a lot may be going through our minds and our hearts that needs to be spoken about. So similarly, there's a lack of resources in the Muslim community where the religious sensitivities of our community, of our faith group, is often not being addressed as a recurring issue. And at the same time, Where imams and religious leaders are seen as the first responders when distress strikes someone in the community, our leadership is simply not equipped nor qualified to be addressing pastoral care issues in the way we have inherited them from the past. So today we're going to be talking about several subjects related to mental health in Islam. And we have a very special guest with us today. Uh, We have Dr. Human Keshavarzi, who is a friend and teacher of mine. Uh, he is the founder and executive director of Khalil Center, a mental health institute specializing in the practice of Islamically integrated psychotherapy. And we're going to talk about what that actually means in a minute. And he's also, and Khalil Center is also the largest provider of Muslim mental health, uh, m- Muslim mental health care in the United States. They're all over the country, Chicago, the Bay, I believe they're in LA now, uh, and also in New York City. Uh So Dr. Kashifarzi is also a licensed psychotherapist in Illinois. He's completed his PsyD, holds a master's in clinical psychology, and as well as a bachelor's of science. And he's a specialist in a psychology track and as well as a minor in Islamic studies. Um, And he's also a student of uh, Sheikh Amin Qawadi at Darul Qasim. Uh, At the same time, he is an adjunct professor of psychology at Argosy University in Chicago, American Islamic College, the Hartford Seminary. And as well as the islamic online university so oh and recently he was appointed a visiting scholar at ibn khaldun university in turkey so dr Human keshavarzi assalamu alaikum welcome to faith and fine print how are you doing
2: salam i'm good alhamdulillah what about yourselves
1: hanging in there you know trying to make sense of the current situation that we're in and uh, trying to keep afloat Oman, how are you doing man
0: i'm okay Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, Alman recently.
1: I'm going to mention this, but Alman actually just this weekend celebrated his uh, wedding anniversary in quarantine.
0: Right, that was that was fun. (laughs) Just I, I uh, we had a picnic on the on the balcony. (laughs) That's the best we could do. Um, But yeah, it was fun. But um, yeah, so I mean, I'm really uh, like I said, I'm excited about this episode. Excited about our guests. I've heard a lot about the Khalil Center.
2: No, Alhamdulillah, um, you guys for, for having me on. It's uh, indeed an honor. And um, I'm meeting Alman for the first time, uh, uh, you know, on on the podcast. I uh, hope to meet you in person after inshallah. the dust inshallah, after the things, things clear up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nihal and I have, um, you know, uh, met a number of times in Hartford, Connecticut, alhamdulillah. And it's been, uh, you know, a great honor and pleasure uh, knowing, knowing Nihal, and, and, and we've had uh, a lot of uh, good memories together in, in Connecticut and in the East Coast. Alhamdulillah, he has been um, very uh, hospitable when, whenever I've been in the area. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of mental health, as, as, as you were talking about, Nihal, of course, uh, right now, mental health is a really important um, thing to consider, of course. Um, as I was just actually looking at a, a study and a curve on how, you know, there may be a little bit of a delayed effect on mental health crises in this uh, particular situation, despite the fact that, of course, everybody's a little bit on edge and anxious. Um, and that's pretty normal, right? Like when, when there, whenever there's a fear threat or a sudden change in our environments, uh, we start to go into fight or flight mode and we start to feel a little bit anxious. And that's pretty normal. That's pretty healthy. The problem is when it becomes chronic, right? When the situation doesn't resolve, when circumstances or adverse conditions or stressful conditions persist for some time, that's when it starts to really catch up with us. And our coping resources start to thin out and and get spread thin and spread out. And and then we start to see, um, you know, where these things can kind of turn into more, uh, pronounced kind of uh, emotional dysregulation and, and, and anxiety and stress and sadness and all these things start to go up in intensity and severity. Um, so I was just looking at a curve actually so we're gonna you know re- we're gonna start to see that happen a lot more and um, and as an institution you know we are trying to prepare for that certainly we're trying to do what we can currently to play some preventative role by getting online and having our online infrastructure set up for that, um, but also uh, potentially preparing for the wave as it starts to uh, set in. So, you know, of course, we're living in unprecedented times in a very uh, strange world um, where things really, you know, has shaken up everybody. Um, And so I just wanted to kind of put that out there, that, that acknowledging the fact that, you know, many people, including all of our, Listeners, um, you know, us providers, right, who are serve as uh, caregivers for others, right, uh, may also be vulnerable and at risk to start to feel it, especially as we, you know, become preoccupied helping others that we uh, forget about ourselves, and it starts to really uh, kick in. So uh, we're here. We're here to support. We're here to help, and 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 that's what that's what we started this thing for is to try to really. You know, feel the pulse and the pain of our community, and tr- try to be there to support them in in, in trying times. Uh, whether that be in you know things that affect them individually uh, and personally, or on a collective scale that's sort of affecting all of us now.
1: I think that's those are very important points that we I guess need to keep in mind uh, moving forward, because like you mentioned, these are unprecedented times, and I don't want to necessarily focus too much on. The trauma aspect, I think. I think a lot of people are going through a lot, Um, and Mm -hmm. I'm going to circle back around to this, inshallah, later, but I think I want to kind of take a step back and talk about the idea of mental health in Islam. How has it been understood? I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people, a lot of folks, uh, the culture that is currently being curated within the community is uh, one where mental health is looked at with a sense of disgust. Mental health is looked at with a sense of Uh, Contempt, mental health is looked at in a sense of taboo. So much Mm -hmm. so, in a lot of olden Muslim societies, you would see that someone who is maybe going through a mental health issue, they were looked Mm -hmm. down upon. But at the same time, if you were to talk to someone and say, "Hey, my body is hurting. Hey, my Mm -hmm. head is hurting. Okay, that's okay. That's there's nothing wrong with that. But when you understand the mind, and you understand the mind as a muscle, and you Mm -hmm. understand how." in the last 100 to 200 years, the amount of taboo that has been associated with mental health, number one, from the perspective of Muslim societies looking down upon it because of issues of like nazar or jinn or something like that. And then on the other end, this is actually a really interesting um, point I found out recently, so over the summer, I actually visited Auschwitz and I went to like all these different concentration camps. But what a lot of people don't know is that in that World War II era, mental health or psychiatry as a field was very heavily exploited to uh, harm our Jewish brothers and sisters or gypsy, gypsy brothers and sisters. So you have it from both ends, right? And actually, when I was writing my thesis, like one of my professors, he's, um, yeah. he's an 80-year-old German guy. Right. And when I tried to show him this thing about like amalgamating between mental health issues and Islamic law, he was kind of a little taken aback. But, you know, he was open to the idea, but it was for him. That was a very hard time to have lived through. So not to get too lost, but if we were to understand it in a very straightforward manner, what Mm -hmm. does mental health in Islam as a discussion look like?
2: Right. Right. I mean, let me let me just kind of jump in about the point of uh, the stigma, because I think a lot of I think what you're alluding to is a sort of. Um, the stigma on mental health, and 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 there's a lot of that, um, yeah. More so, actually, in uh, in in minority populations, right, in places outside of Western Europe and the U.S., uh, it's amplified. And in the U.S. and even uh, and and in, in Western countries, typically among uh, minorities, a lot more so. The stigma is a lot more so. But um, I think we oftentimes, sometimes we kind of miss the the complexity of this issue um, because um, it's easy to kind of get up and say, you know what, Uh, because we don't want to go on the other side of the bandwagon, too, to say that, um, hey, look, you know, Muslims are somehow uh, backwards peoples, you know, get with the program, mental health is a thing, Um, people should be going to psychologists and psychiatrists if they have a problem. Um, And why isn't, you know, um, third world countries or Muslim countries or, um, you know, Muslims really sort of keeping up with the times. Right. And and so I think that that can further pathologize. Right. That's where we can use our professionalism and our, you know, our credentials to kind of pathologize a population. We have to ask ourselves.
1: Sorry, what does pathologize refer to for the people who may not understand it?
2: Right. I'm uh, Sorry. So, yeah. Stop me if 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 if, if I need to, you know, uh, stop. express my differently. <laughs> uh, sometimes I live in my own little bubble, especially when now that I'm not interacting with a lot of people. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're, we're we're all starting to become like mini Aristotle's. Therefore, I am. I don't think Aristotle said that, but yeah. thinking,
2: thinking, you know, philosophizing about the meaning and, and function of life and whatnot um but yeah I, pathology meaning that we can kind of um you know uh make th- think that there's something wrong with individuals right that that we can look down on them and say that there's um that they that they have a problem for having this set of experiences or these sets of beliefs right like in um in, in China, mental mental health. Sorry, Islam was you know viewed by viewed by the government as a mental illness. I mean, they even put it out there, right? So it's like they're pathologizing. They're saying that people who believe this have a problem and a sickness, right? And um, and so I think there's a there's more complexity to this, and I think we have to appreciate it by thinking about the fact that when people have a problem, any problem, right? they go to individuals who know how to solve that problem for them, right? It's a very instinctual response for all of us, for everything, right? You have financial problems, you go to your accountant. You have health problems, you go to your physician. You don't know something about religion, you go to your imam or your uh, clergy. You don't know something about the economy, you go, you you sort of read something about uh, uh, economics, right? But... What's the what's the deal with mental health? Like, why is it that when we have a problem, uh, a mental health problem, that we don't want to go to somebody? And I think there's a it's important that the, the, the reality is that people are going places. They are seeking help. The question is, where are they going? Right. And so this is what makes the issue a lot more complex. People do go. But the question is, why don't they go to mental health professionals? And, um, and part of it, it's like, where do they go? They go to imams, they go to religious clergy, they go to their family, they go to friends, right? They, they, they go to these other places. Why don't they go to mental health professionals? Well, you know, I'll be the first among mental health professionals to say that, well, we may have created a little bit of a bad rep as well. Right. Uh, our, our our mental health is, you know, is not very old, right? Uh, mental health treatment system is not very old in the Western world, unlike say medicine, for example, that has a very ancient kind of uh, uh, origin, reputation, history. right? Um, so it, it's, it's not very old. When it was brought to cultural minorities, as you said, it was also used as a vehicle of, uh, 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 and part of the cultural colonialism right? That uh, certain societies were viewed as flawed. Their cultures were seen as backwards. They were uh, put uh, labels of of mental illness on these populations. And when it did even come to the Muslim world, it was an underdeveloped um, system that was largely divorced from what? Spirituality altogether, faith altogether. Uh, Because even that, only until about 20 years ago did uh, religion and, and, and faith be an acceptable notion in, in the mental health care industry, right? I mean, we look at some of the, uh, you know, Freud was uh, antagonistic against religion. Carl Rogers, despite the fact that, you know, uh, he's seen as sort of like a very you know, humanistic, very kind soft and gentle person when you get him on the top of a religion you see what he wrote about religion He's very antagonistic against
1: it
0: by the way he just said, to
1: for for the for the listeners um the people that dr keshavarzi just mentioned referring to um you, you who, who did you just mention the two people well so so
2: freud right freud right. is i think you know everybody in popular press probably knows both. sigmund freud
1: like the fa- the he- fathers of modern psychology or western psychology you could say
2: exactly exactly yeah. and um And then, you know, we had the sort of um, hard science sort of approach, uh, physicalism, right? Where they neglected any discussion about a metaphysical. And so now you bring this, right? This system that's still underdeveloped and largely institutionalized. So today, you know how we have like community mental health centers and private practice, it wasn't really common, right? You had these psych wards, if you think about the movies or you think about back in the day, right? these systems were transported to the muslim world and so when they thought of mental health mental illness right uh, during that time they thought well you got to be really crazy or out of your mind or you got to be really really severely pathological or sick in order to go to a mental health provider and so that stigma has stuck and it also stuck in the western world mind you right the stigma still exists in the western world in the western world even among non muslims but it's started to shift. It has shifted a lot. But the Muslim world post-colonialism is going through all sorts of trauma, right? And it's trying to recover, right? And develop their own sense of autonomy and identity and and, and whatnot. That's super complex, right? And so that notion has stuck around with us. Now, you know, of course, the bright end of it is that, and, and you, as you mentioned, you know, so then what do people say? Okay, well, mental illness is just associated with, all of these negative things or magic or gin or, you know, uh, or, or evil eye or whatnot. And, um, and I think that's something that we have to look at. And I, you know, I I don't want to sort of get on the bandwagon of what everybody else does anyways, or we already know there's sort of all these campaigns towards destigmatization, but I think we have to recognize and acknowledge uh, the complexity of where some of the stigma comes from.
1: Yeah. So let me, let me let me kind of um, move around a little bit. The idea of mental health in Islam, I think um, a lot of people don't understand to what degree mental health has been measured in Islam. And there's like a couple of things that come to mind. Uh, number one was um, the idea of the Bimadistan, right, which existed during ninth century uh, right. Iraq and the ninth century uh, Egypt, Correct. where during this time period Europe was quite literally in the Dark Ages. That's right. literally what was going on. And not to say that the bimaristans were like a purely Muslim invention, obviously they were inherited from the Byzantine Empire, but when they were inherited, it became a place of holistic healing and holistic meaning what? That understanding that illness more often than not compared to what like the healthcare system has become today, have a pill and then it'll, you know, reduce the amount of dopamine your brain is releasing or the amount of serotonin your brain is releasing. As opposed right. to understanding that let's work to change this person's holistic environment. So you'd have um, people be put into a sanatorium, which is like an open area where that person, you can feel open air and grass and whatnot. Let's have a sheikh come in and recite some Quran. Let's have someone also administer maybe medicine. Let's have someone, if the need be, engage in music and art therapy for those people that were ill, right? So you had this like holistic sense of, healing engaged with people. And I remember reading about um, Foucault, who was a famous French uh, philosopher uh, in the modern age. He said that if one were to imagine and take a look at this idea of madness in the Arab world, they actually gave it much more consideration than what the modern age would give to it. Um, And and I think that was in his book, The History of Madness, if people want to like reference that. So it's just really important to it's really interesting to see how in the ninth century, that's what the Muslim world was catering to and taking care of people in these hospitals. And then you kind of fast forward and you see the one thing that was constantly everywhere. Right. Even in the. Turkish bathhouses from the, the hammam, which was what? It was a it was a bathhouse, a public bathhouse, a part of the waqf often, and which generated income. But so people can go and cool down and relax and enjoy themselves. And that was a part of their everyday lives. And now you fast forward into colonialism and post-colonialism, and we've lost this tradition. We okay, have this yeah. tradition of literally verses of the Qur'an being revealed, where... The idea of cognitive restructuring occurred, right? Uh, <speaking in Hebrew> that you know God knows everything that you reveal and, and that you show, and the companions literally went to the Prophet ﷺ and, and said that, "Well, this is really hard for us." And the idea was that yes, it'll be hard for you in that beginning, but then eventually you'll be weaned off of it, and you will be told that you will not be made to be responsible for that which is beyond your control. So. That's- understanding the islamic perspective i think it's lost so somewhere between like the 18th century the 19th century and in 2020 right where yeah people right now if anything mental health is something people are talking about and not just and this is where i want to circle back um, not just for people it's been hard for caregivers it's been hard for me right Mm -hmm. like i live by myself and i i chose to live by myself so i can go out and meet people and stuff but it starts getting to you and then actually two weeks ago three people passed away in the community back to back mm-hmm. to back right and i'm literally at the funeral home helping with the washing and then the worst was like one of the people that passed away um you know had that aspect of like the covid present within us so we couldn't even wa- wash them properly and that was like the worst feeling i'm like so- SubhanAllah like like someone's dying moments, regardless of like the Islamic injunctions and the allowances and all that stuff. There's obviously the aspect of the fatwa, but then there's like the aspect of the taqwa, the fatwa being the Islamic verdict. Sure, like the legal aspect is allowed, but then there is this simmering sense of like, man, I feel so bad that I couldn't really fulfill this person's last rites in the best way that they had to be you know, given. So I'm thinking to myself as a Muslim caregiver at a Islamic center, at a masjid, if this is my state, what's going to be the state of the people in the community? And I think it's important for people to realize that having these discussions, being open, is actually ingrained within our faith group, within Islam, within the Quran, within the Hadith literature. Like it's there, you know. And I think that's what people forget.
0: Just as a, uh, you reminded me, you know, like a, about a year ago when I was out in um, in uh, Lebanon doing the uh the camps i was at the uh, the refugee camps with the refugees from syria
1: yeah please clarify and, uh, what type of camp you were at uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh we were we were there and um basically we were there doing music therapy programs right well i was with an organization called penny appeal and um you know and doing my research for that program and understanding how how music therapy has been practiced you know, I came across what Muslims have done. Right. And, and like you mentioned at that time when Europe was in these dark ages, what attention Muslims were giving to these therapies to the extent that, you know, they would put people on donkeys because the, the, the sound that the hooves would make, the rhythms would calm them down. And then you go, you talk about the birds and the open spaces and the sound of water and like the studies that goes into all these things. And um, it's fascinating to learn about. And, um, and, 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 I want, to, I want to add to that, the fact that I feel like with a lot of young people, you know, earlier you talked about how, you know, if you're sick, you go to the doctor, right? Mm-hmm. And if you have this need, you go there. If you have like a financial issue, you go to your accountant, like you said, right? What I found is with a lot of young people nowadays, there, there's two disconnects. One is with, if they're having a spiritual crisis, spiritual issue, a lot of young people don't know where to go to for that. Mm-hmm. that's one issue and then when it's and because of the um the inadequacy that exists when it comes to like you know mental health within in terms of like practitioners and like the the moss and stuff right um then they get turned off from that and then a- another group of individuals doesn't have uh they, they don't go to uh they don't seek out mental health yeah. anyway so you have two areas where right. it's like there, there's there's issues and so yeah. um you know that's just w- what those are the thoughts that came to my mind. I mean, uh, I feel like there's a disconnect. I, I don't feel like people understand how they come together.
2: And, and I think it goes back to that notion, I think, that Nihal was also talking about in terms of um, the place of, uh, you know, mental health and Islam and in our history and our legacy, right? I think uh, between the two of you, you guys have, mashallah articulated um, a lot of um, you know demonstrated or demonstrated a lot of the richness of our own intellectual heritage, right? And the richness um, and presence of uh, the treatment of mental illness, mental health, acknowledgement of it, the recognition of it, and um, and and these existed in our in our communities. And so, um, what I want to recognize is the fact that you know like looking at the bright side of it, look look at the conversation we're having right now, right? I mean, um, the fact that we're having this conversation, I think wouldn't have happened, say 15 years ago, it was very rare. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, you know, when Khalil Center first started out, say, you know, uh, 10 years ago, um, it was a much different picture than it is today. And I think, um, you know, let's also look at the optimism as well, right? The bright side to say that, yes, you know, we didn't really know what the place of Islam, uh, a psychology or, uh, you know, had in Islam, but now we are starting to, right? And I think that there are opportunities for young people today to learn that tradition, to get involved, to become, you know, practitioners and providers. Um, Educational resources and um, you know a center like flow center for example to be able to connect with and to learn and to And to um and to recognize that Uh that space so alhamdulillah, I think there is Uh some some light at the end of the tunnel there Um, but yeah to speak to this issue of like the richness um, Of the islamic intellectual heritage and the place of mental health in uh in the islamic tradition um, you know, certainly, you know, going back to uh, the, the Quran itself, right? Going back to the statements of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi like when, if somebody says that, you know, mental illness or mental health or mental health care is like a Western phenomenon or invention or something like that, then then they're rejecting nusus altogether, right? The, the nusus itself, right? I mean, by nusus, I mean it's, it's statements of revelation, right? Quran and sunnah itself. Rufi al an al-thalath, al hatta Yabra, right? That uh, a person, that, you know, that three people whom the pen of responsibility has been lifted from, the individual uh, who has, um, you know, legal insanity or mental illness, right? Uh, severe mental illness, uh, until they have uh, recovered. Right, you know, the Prophet ﷺ has du'as from uh, you know uh from Hamm and Hazan, right? والكسر, and so on and so forth, right? From uh, seeking protection, right? And so we have this these notions already existent and and I think uh, uh, this revival, right? I think you said, like, what happened? Somewhere along the way, we had this sort of disconnect between, say, the 18th century and the modern modern era. I think a lot has happened, right? During that sort of um, disconnect and, 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 and that sort of interruptive, say, colonial era, right? That brings us to modernity. But I think that there is sort of a, des- a desire for that revival, because Muslims, as Muslims, we do have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to take that, كَذَلِكَ you know, right? That we created you uh, uh, that as a moderate nation so that you may bear witness against the people. Right? So لَلنَّاسِ You're the best of people. Right? Uh, you know, we have this rich tradition. We have to kind of display it. And as you know, one of my teachers says, Sheikh Amin, Right? Not only do we have to represent this tradition, but we have to represent this tradition, right? Represent it in all of these different problems of the world, right? That's deep. That's very deep. And and to say, Islam has some solutions for economic situations. Islam has solutions for the cross of Islamic bioethics. Islam has solutions um, for the discussion of uh, mental health and mental illness and um and so i think we do bear that responsibility in a world right again this was like, i'm i too, i'm i'm very critical of the uh, modern mental health system that's why we have hill center because we didn't we didn't just run and say you know what we could have created a, a generic clinic right and said hey look i'm gonna create a generic clinic You know, we're psychologists and psychiatrists and mental health providers, and we're just going to provide culturally sensitive services for our community, right? Meaning that I practice as I've been trained and then I offer that service to Muslims. No, what we said is that we need to do something to change the way that mental health is offered and to change the narrative and the conversation around mental health in a world and a society where, you know, people make money off of other people's suffering, right? Um, where the pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies run the way that mental health care and health care in general is done, where people's suffering is equated down to the dollars, right? It's not about suffering. It's about, well, you know what? We need to put money into mental health care. Why? Because it'll bring more money, because it'll have a better return on our economy, right? But the problem with that, and then and then it's a numbers game. Well, you know what? It's like, it's like the tire companies, I think, forget which one it was, right? They, they sort of say, you know what, we could do a recall um, and that's going to cost us this much loss versus let the people die and the lawsuits and that's going to be cheaper than the recall. So let's like, you know, just let them die. You see what I'm saying? And so decisions on health care are being made this way, on mental health care are being made in this way. And now when we look at our tradition and say, Muslims provided health care to everybody, right? And they, uh, uh, and it was through the waqf system, as, as, as uh, Nihal was talking about, right? That, that this awqaf, that the charitable institutions provided care to everybody, whether they could afford it or not. What about the ethics of practice? As a practitioner, what's your responsibility? My identity goes beyond a profession, right? Of a, you know, a professional that says, you know what, I'm sort of paid to be on the job in this way for the next uh, eight hours. And then I go home and I could care less about what's going on with anybody else. Right. That's a sort of a mechanistic, like I administer a particular intervention and you pay me for that service of that intervention. It I monetize on it and it gets you some relief. I don't care that it relieves you. It's just that the intervention is designed to to do that and then we can quote it right and say that you know we really care about human beings and that's why we're doing this right but it's cliche right I mean it's like it's easy to say that when you're when when you're when your whole industry depends on the suffering of others and 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 right. and that you bank off of it right right as,
0: as a as a follow-up to that you know yeah. w- w- what are some of the ways that you're changing the way mental health is practiced at the Khalil center
1: and actually, before, yeah, I mean, before, before you
0: answer that, what was the thing Sheikh
1: Amin said? Again, that was deep.
2: He said not only to represent this tradition, right? We have to represent Islam in our actions and in our, in our um, conduct. But we have to represent Islam, right? Re- meaning that Islam doesn't need to be changed. It's not reform Islam. It's not we got to go into, um, you know, these industries and reform it and, uh, you know, it's we got to represent it. It means that it does. It, Islam itself is robust enough. It has a capacity, right? The uh, you to repackage, be, yeah, to be able to go and, and, and into all of these sectors and to reform it to reform the sector, not reform Islam, right. right? The reform is being done in the other direction, right? And um, and 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 if you think about it, that. Uh, and we're talking about the the foundations of Islam, right? Like, so I'll give you an example. So people will have this all de- day and night, uh, all this dispute about uh, science versus faith, mm-hmm. right? Science is, it, you know, is it compatible with faith? Is it not compatible with faith? Um, you know what, science is itself its own creed, or oh, it's, it's like, you know, it's it's, it's its own religion, and therefore, you know what, I, it's all about Quran and Sunnah for me, and I don't care what the scientists said, right? And then the scientist's like, yeah, you know, well, you know, that's kind of outdated, and like, we got to look at modern science, and you get this debate. But you know what, this is, this is a um, Western European problem that is imported into the Muslim world. You could not take get taken seriously, it, as an intellectual, anywhere in the Muslim world. If you got got up and you're saying that, you know what, um, uh, you know, it's Quran and Sunnah versus like uh, established fact, uh, proven by science. People will not take you seriously, right? Uh, why? Because you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, we have it in the Quran itself, right? We have it in the Quran. Um, it's uh, uh, what is it? Um, that Inna fi al wal-nahari right? Uh, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, what's
1: uh, you're the ayah? You're the hafiz. You, you, uh, Inna fi samawati wal-ardi wa al wal-nahari You know what, let me just actually go on and do the entire Quran, since like Ramzan's already here. So, practically. <laughs> Are we cool with that?
2: No, go for it. Why not? I mean, yeah, no, we're joking. Go seriously. ahead. Sorry. Yeah, in the creation of the heavens <laughs> and the earth, and the changing of the night and the day, are what signs for those who reflect, or signs for the intelligent ones, right? The the intelligent ones, right? So. In the Qur'an itself, it's saying that they're what? They're ayats, looking at the science, meaning that established you know, observation that's fact cannot be denied, right? There's no conflict between Qur'an and Sunnah, right, and science. When we have a conflict, we call that a ta'arud or an apparent contradiction, right? It seems to be that there's a but we what we need to do is we need to actually look a little bit deeper to understand What is Quran and Sunnah actually saying? What are the actual facts? How do we separate fact from opinion and then we can find some reconciliation, but the, the, the dialogue is not that Oh, this is science and we just throw it out or you know what this is like, you know, Islam doesn't recognize modern realities um, but Islam has a foundation, like we 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 consider the mutakallimin, right? The theologians, discursive theologians, have discussed this notion and have said that not truth, truth, right? Knowledge is of three kinds, and they're equal, by the way. It sounds controversial or heretical, right? They're equal, meaning that wahi, Quran, and sunnah. Reason, right? Um, and, uh, and um, uh, empirical fact observation, right? Empiric- uh, uh, empirical facts. They're equal sources of what? Information, of providing true knowledge,
1: okay? Which actually gets into the other aspect of malum versus ilm in Arabic, which is knowledge versus information. It's exactly that. Like that's the, that's literally the information is translated as malum and something that's known versus ilm is something that is transform that transforms you. But just wanted yeah, to mention yeah. that.
2: So, but these three things now, wahi, Quran and Sunnah is Muqaddas. It's holy, meaning it's, it's, it's sanct, it has a sanctity in and of itself. It's kalamullah, it's wahi, right? it's uh the statements of the Prophet it deserves reverence that you should t- you know not touch it without wudu and recognize that Allah is speaking to you that this is a kalam allah right and uh, uh, now science though when we look at who created allah created uh, uh, it's a kalam allah but what about the khalq of allah what about the sifat what about the attributes of him creating the human being and the brain and the and the, and, and and it's uh, and the way that it functions these are also Ayat, Allah created this, right? And so science is what? An attempt to be able to know and understand those patterns. That whom that leads you to that creator. And so Islam does what? It actually, we are the most entitled to this tradition. Why? Al Dallat al Mu'min. That wisdom is a lost commodity of the believer. So science is our commodity, right? Uh, 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 and and wheresoever he or she finds it, they're most entitled to it. That's really important. We are actually more entitled to it. Why? Because we need to reappropriate it back into faith. Reappropriate it back into a connection with, between the physical and the metaphysical. And when we can reconnect these two things, right, that is a service that we offer to humanity. Right. That is a service that we say Islam has this solution and and the Western world maybe didn't did not. And they had this tension between, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, science and uh, and and their theologians. uh, Right and then they couldn't uh sort of reconcile so they end up like abandoning the church right and then they end up going down physicalism and and, like separation of church and state in order to understand the muslim psyche historically, we never had that phenomenon occur until colonialism imports it much later right into the muslim world and then we have this like what molvi versus like You know academic split you know science and you know the the sirs versus the the sheikh type of phenomenon uh whereas like you go backwards and uh the doctor was a sheikh right Mm -hmm. he was he was a theologian even sina you know was what a theologian right you know something Uh,
1: that that actually just comes to mind right now and then we'll take our quick break right after this is um when i was at you know, the one thing that was brought up over and over again, Sheikh Abdul Hassan uh, Ali Nadiru rahimahullah. his brother, was a scholar as well as a physician. But that was like in the 19th, in the 20th century, right? But if you actually go back to the 18th century in India, you had the likes of Shawlillah uh, Dahlawi, right? al Baligha, who literally his life work, um, and it's really interesting because whether you're like Salafi or Sufi or you're hadith or you're Brelvi, they all lay claim to Shawlillah Dahlawi, every single one of them. But what was really interesting about and a lot of people don't know this, is that his work was about the amalgamation of the social the social sciences with deen, right? Aqidah, um, uh, fiqh, all those things. Like what are the greater benefits of these in modern science? What was really interesting also that a lot of people don't know is that during this time period, the Mughal courts were also uh, putting into consideration the writing of Fatawa Alamgiri mm-hmm. or Fatawa Al Hindiya, and actually, Shah Dahlawi wasn't a big fan of that project. He was like, you know, I don't think just codifying a bunch of a bunch of fatwa will do much. But it's interesting because it's still till today. Al Fatawa Al Hindiya is still something read by Hanafi fiqh jurists, but also Shah is respectively read in the same way. But um, it's an interesting point. We're gonna get into it. Um, we're so- gonna take a quick break and we're going to have a word from our sponsor. Stay with us. Uh, we have Dr. Human Kashavarzi with us. This is Nihal Khan and?
0: Alman
1: Nusrat. BRB.
2: Hey listeners, wondering what The Mantle is? The Mantle is an organization based in Fairfield County, Connecticut. We are dedicated to creating sacred spaces that facilitate the understanding of Islamic spirituality. The Mantle aims to revive the prophetic tradition of understanding, compassion, and spiritual cultivation. We encourage authenticity in exchange for authenticity. Come as you are to learn Islam as it is. Find out more about The Mantle by following us online on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Mantle of Love. We hope you enjoy the rest of this episode
1: of Faith in Fine Print. And we are back to faith in fine print. We are here today with Dr. Human Kashavarzi of the Khalil Center with your hosts, Alman Nusrat and Nihal Khan. So we are gonna get right back into it and I'm gonna kind of shift gears a little bit. Uh, Dr. Kashavarzi, I think one thing that is an issue right now in the Muslim community is speaking about, um, and this is kind of the elephant in the room, Um, As somebody who is a is a caregiver, I've worked as an imam, I've worked as a religious director, I've worked as a chaplain. And I think a lot of other imams and people in these positions find themselves with a lack of training to actually address issues of pastoral care. Um, And not only that, with the rising, I don't want to say rising, but the issues that arise in like spiritual abuse and stuff like that among scholarship it shakes people's faith, and, and today's subject is not about spiritual abuse. Inshallah, we'll be having an, a separate episode on that. But the fact that imams and religious scholars ha- are seen as the first responders when distress strikes the community, but they may not know the best way to give back. I've been in conversation with several people in the community who have actually been marred, uh, uh, you know, maimed and marred by very negative interactions, let's say, from religious clergy, um, who they, they weren't trying to be insidious they weren't trying to be bad but they merely didn't have the proper tools to give the advice that they needed and This is also something else which comes up I, I, I Personally and people like find this funny But I personally have a problem with the her title Imam because there's a lot of baggage that comes with it Like in the olden days the Imam was like the the Shaykh al-Hadith the, the guy that taught the Hadith or who was the Faqih, right? And then you had it kind of become inherited into these Islamic empires as a government employee who would lead prayers. But he wasn't your counselor. He wasn't someone that uh, did anything beyond give khutbas and lead prayers. But now there is this realm of kind of a medical slash educator slash, you know, whatnot that the imam title ends up you know in taking in and i think our communities are kind of messing up with that so i'm actually a proponent of kind of t- stepping back from the idea of the imam or worse the ustav right like yeah. these titles that literally hold no water it's actually funny in new york city a couple of uh, a month ago i walked by a license plate which said ustav i said i'm not sure if this is referencing somebody who doesn't have islamic qualifications or if they sing koali. Because for those of you that don't know, um, in India and Pakistan, an ustad there's someone that sings kawali, which is like traditional Sufi folk folklore music um, that was like started in Persia. But I guess my question to you is, in this current situation that we are dealing with, in which there is a scarcity of people who are qualified, who are Muslims, who are scholars, and who are people that uh, possess the, um, what's the word, the clout that, They have in the community to deal with people's pastoral care. What can we be doing as a community to address that issue?
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can speak to kind of um, more of the mental health and ends of these, right? Because I think, as you mentioned, uh, imams are are put in positions where um, both the community, actually, there was a study um, done in New York City on the Muslim population. Um, where the majority of, uh, of of New Yorkers, Muslim Muslim New Yorkers, believe that the Imam, when they ask the question, it does is your Imam is an Imam a counselor? Right. The majority of them said uh, definitely true to that. Right. So actually, there's public perception or belief, right, that Imams actually possess these um, these skills, right, that they they've been trained to do this or that they have been put in these positions. So I think there's a lot. Of growth and education, and certainly, I mean, I'm not, this isn't putting the responsibility on the imams because, uh, you know, uh, many of many of my colleagues who are EMEMs that that we interact with and, and work with uh, are among, you know, uh, you know, among among individuals that really uh, support Khalil Center and push for it and send referrals out. So they're part of helping individuals become re-educated and understanding where do you go for your problems. Um, But I think that this is something that is a a problem that needs to that that's going to develop and and hopefully get better through the maturity of the Muslim community. Right. As you mentioned, like when you take Islam and or an Islamic society or Muslim society that's run by a state that has state funding that can have a wife. Like a person who just gives bayan, and that's all they do, right? They're just paid to do that. That that somebody who's like a mudarris, who's like a sheikh al-hadith, for example, and that's all they do. Like people don't go to them to lead the salah, right? And then you have like the imam who's going. Now the problem is, you know, it, when you come into the Western context and in, and and in young Muslim communities like in the U.S., the imam has to play all of those roles right the differentiation of roles all get merged together and so the community's needs all just kind of fall on one person's um uh, shoulders and i think that that's that's a problem and i think we share that burden of responsibility to try to tackle this as a community i can see you smiling so i sense a joke coming around Yeah. <laughs> <on your> mind.
1: <laughs> there there there's something brewing, but no, you can you finish your thought and, and then I'll you're, mention it. <laughs> you were like I'd rather not say.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: we're 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 on air, so <laughs>
1: you know we'll
0: we'll see.
2: This'll be for like the after podcast.
0: Right. We have a Patreon, this is where we put the uh the extra footage. Yeah, the bloopers. <laughs> yeah
1: when the when the kufi comes off <laughs> no i i, I was I, i'm just thinking about the various like pastoral care situations that i've been in um and like maintaining and, and i think this this goes to show right obviously um i remember when i was like 21 years old right and or, no i think i was like 19 and um i was leading tarawih in a community and um you know Alhamdulillah, I've, I've been all over the country doing it and This one community I go to, again, I'm 19 years old. And this older woman, probably, like, in her 60s, comes up to me bawling her eyes out. And she's like, are you the imam? I was like, I'm not the imam. She goes, well, I need to talk to you. I'm like, about what? She goes, I have a marriage situation. Hmm. I'm like, bro, I'm 19. (laughs) I ain't married. I'm Muslim. We don't date. Like, who who are you talking to, right? It's like, you know, and, and... um." i was like okay i guess i'll go i'll go and um and i'll speak to her so she um i think after maghrib or something after eating she pulls me aside and she goes and she's just like i I need to kind of get something off my chest i said what is it she goes i just found out my husband of 10 years has a wife and four kids in a separate country and i'm like broken right and and that's not fair to her because she he doesn't he didn't tell her none of that stuff and and then eventually she's just like completely broken. I guess she's already been in past relationships. And I'm just thinking at that time period, I had, uh, I didn't know what to say. And I, and I don't know, I recited some ayat and like gave her some advice. And I remember starting my god. What did con- you
0: say? I think that's what I'm saying, right?
1: <laughs> As I started, I said, sister, I just want you to understand. At that time, I was like, you know, I'm like- I'm not married. She goes, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh man. And she starts laughing. I start laughing,
0: right? <laughs> and she's like, that made me feel better as she walked away. You know, I'm just
1: like, you know, you know I, I, that's the first thing she said. And then, and then afterwards, I'm just like, you know, inshallah, there's khair in this. There is there's, there's something, you know, now that you found out, you can kind of move on from it. And I remember it was like everything wrong you could probably say, she was just taking because she just needed someone to like hear her yeah. right yeah. like like I, I think like it happened another time like another person comes up to me and and I, I'm just being real about this, right I, you know as somebody now you know who wants to you know get into pastoral care at a professional level um
2: yeah, 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 having some self disclosure he's like. <laughs> I, I, come to think of it, there was like a
1: couple of like <laughs> lives I messed up. In of my... <laughs> no, um, but like what? No, I'm, I'm just being real, right? And, and, and I take full responsibility. And, 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 and um, the thing was, see, every situation is different. I remember one person complaining to me saying that like they couldn't get into like a certain program that they wanted to get into, and I'm like, yeah, maybe you can do something else. She's like, why would you say that? <laughs> I remember, right? But I'm going to say this, right, that this is like almost 10 years ago. And, you know, I think I've come a long way from that. But it goes to say, I don't want somebody like, you know, my, um, you know, the young people that are going to be getting into Muslim pastoral care to be having those same issues. Like, they they, they need to be trained beforehand. I think our masajids have to put in checks and balances to make sure that, like pastoral care is being catered to. I, I think this is another aspect which, which it'll well, touch
2: that, on. That and and the and the massage need to actually support it, right? So the yeah. thing is, we've had our first responder training. And by the way, you know, uh, this is refreshing data and information that I want to make sure that we are paying attention to is that um, over the course of um, a year and a half, we did like, what, seven or eight different first responder trainings, an eight-hour kind of our own equivalent of a Muslim mental health, uh, of a mental health or psychological first aid, according to our curriculum, which is kind of grounded in more of an Islamic methodology. Um, We had, you know, um, we've had like, what, hundreds of imams actually sign up. Like in Chicago, we had, you know, the major scholars of all of the different masajid um, show up in, in, in the Bay Area, the same thing, in Toronto, the same thing. So, like, it goes to show that look, you know, people are willing to have this conversation and they know their limitations, but the key is, and this is really important, that. We have to do it in a non in this this integrated way, right? And that's what you know, kind of coming full circle. It's Islamic integration, right? It's like imams are willing to recognize their limitations, but oftentimes people we just don't know what those are, right? I mean, I think the thing is that how do you know as a pastoral care provider or imam or somebody that's coming in, this person just needs somebody to talk to, or they just need like a fatwa, a quick answer, or they need like um, you know marriage counseling. Or, wow, this person actually seems like they have a serious psychological problem that I can identify, right? It's not just a regular question. And so there is that overlap. Like dealing with human beings is very complex, right? And there's very complex needs that overlap with one another. And so I think the more educated we're becoming in our community, the better we're going to be at doing this. And this is where... Our communities really need to uh, take that responsibility and I'm taking the responsibility off of solely the imams shoulders here because my experience is that the imams are more than willing to play ball as long as people don't come at them as the imam is backwards, the imam doesn't know anything, the imam is uneducated, the imam is you know creating problems if you don't come at him that way right and 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 you approach them in a more inclusive way um, what I've found... Wait, are you that,
1: saying to humanize your imam? That's messed up, man. Come on.
2: And, and, and so if you recognize your limitations and the strength and the role and respect that your imam has, then the, the community can work together. The masajid has to support these sorts of continuing education. Some of our imams have come to us and said, look, I want to take your class in Hartford, right? I mean, you know, the one that we had together. He's like, but you know what? My message is not going to pay for it. Right. Um, but what they're going to pay for like the, 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 what, you know, hundred thousand dollar chandelier. Right. But then uh, an eight hour, like or a week long training for an imam to be able to recognize psychological trauma. Right. When they come to him while he's seeing like 10, 15 people come to him each week, describing all sorts of problems right that responsibility is on us as a community to say the imam wanted to go he couldn't afford it but you know what we said no you can't go and the imam doesn't have health insurance so he can't get mental health care right you know from khalil center which a place that he trusts because he's like okay they're going to meet my needs at where i where i need to you know the way that i need to have my care taken care of so i think the more we start to build like capacity to say that our masajid our institutions and our masjids are very different here in the u.s than they are in muslim world right in the muslim world the masjid is the masjid you go there you know what you'll have your uncles tell you to shush and like behave there and you know power to them because that's what you do in the masjid don't go there to socialize don't go there to have chai or coffee or like or 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 talk about things like go there to pray have the sanctity do dhikr you know but our masajid in the U.S. play the role of a community, like right? I mean, it's our community institution. You have your gym, you have your banquet hall, it's your marriage, it's the office of the imam, it's the counseling center. It's like, There's so many things that I think add this, and and, and and maybe it has to be, right? Until we become much more mature where we have these standalone institutions,
1: right? I think it also goes back to something else, right? I think in a lot of the Muslim world that the masajid exists in, they're more often than not either government-funded institutions or the land that the masajid are on, or like given from by like a waqf. So there isn't much of an overhead. But right. then here you are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and there are certain checks and balances you have to meet. A masjid right. at the end of the Islamic definition of it, it's a place to pray, right? Like the masjid is where you're gonna go pray. You, it's a place of sajda, quite literally. Right. So if you go and you go into the into the garden that you have, you put four pieces of tape and declare that the masjid saying, this is my waqf land for the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what it was. That's what it was in the Prophet's Yeah, time. You know, yeah. like people forget, but now you have to expand that. You have to grow that. But um, I, I feel like the effects of decolonization or the effects of colonization on the Muslim community is that right. the masjid had become very much boxed into this one little, you know, area, like no pun intended, and that ended up becoming just a prayer space, but everything else, divorce it, right? Culture, divorce it. Uh, Mental health, divorce it. Um, You know, becoming somebody that is going to be a better person, divorce it from the masjid.
2: Exactly. And, And just to kind of bring it to real experiences, now people, when they have a problem, right, it's upon us and the experts or community leaders in these areas to create the pathways of where people are going to go. Like, for example, in your masjid, if you have one entry space for like 2,000 people to get through for Jummah, right, one door, and people start hurting each other, and people start, you know, know, uh, destroying property and whatnot, that's on you, that you didn't think about that. Like, you know, people are going to be people, they're going to come through, and they're going to try to do what they need to do, right? But we have to be smarter as a community to say that look when people are coming to us they don't know that they have a psychological problem like people don't think that way they don't come right. to the masjid thinking you know what i could have like a, a dissociative episode of like a ptsd that is um you know in remission or you know or it's a it's an access one. you they're not thinking that way what they're thinking is you know what I don't know what's going on with me but i'm irritable um i'm like snapping at people i can't sleep at night properly i have this you know like weight on my shoulders physical pain on my shoulders i don't know what's going on maybe i have maybe i have magic i don't know right so i'm gonna go to where do people go in the muslim community i'm gonna go to the masjid i'm gonna go ask somebody in the masjid like do you know anything about this um can somebody help me with this? And people oftentimes interpret this pain as Muslims. And not just Muslims, all faith groups, they interpret psychological pain through a religious lens. And that's actually healthy. It's actually a healthy thing as long as you know how to treat that intersection, right? Because we're not gonna say, oh, it's not spiritual altogether. No, we're not, we're an integrated human being. What affects our body is going to affect our spirit. What affects our spirit is going to affect our body. What affects our psyche is going to affect the whole entire system. But we have to know that. And we have to be able to identify that. And then we have to be able to say, you know what? As an imam, like as an imam, don't send somebody to me that's your congregant that needs you to listen to them, right? For an hour and feel a connection with their imam. No, that's not a mental health condition, right? Sit with them have that conversation, but it you, but we need to be able to identify and say, you know what? I can see you need a little bit more support. And so here's a place to go. Talk to him. Oh, you know what? This sounds more like a medical issue, like a body bodily issue, right? Like, I think you should talk to so-and-so and and, uh, he's a good brother. And like, and that we endorse one another in this way is really how we're gonna build the fabric of this community, right?
1: I think that's a beautiful point to end off on. We need to be in service of each other, endorse one another. And um, I'll uh, mention this hadith, and inshallah we can wrap up. But the Prophet of Allah had mentioned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in the service of a believer when that believer is in the service of another. So when that servant is in the service of another person, then Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, God, is in that person's service as well. Uh, Dr. Humancha uh, where can people find you and get in touch with you?
2: Uh, Khalilcenter.com. You can get on, get on, get online, and it's not only me that you can get in touch with, but the center as a whole. Alhamdulillah, we have, you know, over 35 uh, practitioners across the country. As you mentioned, we have several different offices. We've really been you know, I've been more more than you know busier than ever, really trying to construct um, and and facilitate access to people's uh, needs during this time on our online platforms. Alhamdulillah. We have been thinking about this from before. So 2000, since 2014, we've been doing web therapy. We have a portal for it, but we're we're scaling up. We're trying to kind of get more online presence. We have some support groups offered by our different practitioners. Alhamdulillah, we work as a team, you know, and I think that's that's the thing that I was saying is that it is refreshing and we do get, you know what, like the stigma, it's not 10 years ago. I mean, look, we had we have wait lists. We had, and I'm not sure if we continue to have it, I haven't checked lately, but we've had wait lists for people wanting to get help, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, think about that, right? Like, you're like, oh, stigma, people get help. But you know what? We haven't had the capacity, actually, to be able to deal with the amount of people pouring in for the support that they need. And so I think it is a different conversation and that when you do connect, uh, you know, spirituality with uh, mental health treatment, people will turn to that for help. And so if you need the help that you need or you need to facilitate that help for somebody else, find us. That's what we're here for. We're help we're here to help help you and assist you regardless of if you can afford it or not, um regardless of where you're at, you know, we're we're here to support you, inshallah.
1: Are you personally on Facebook, exactly. Instagram or Twitter? I'm not. <laughs> okay. Alhamdulillah. Dr. So-
0: Keshavarzi, I wanted to uh just personally thank you for your, not only the time today but uh, just all the work that you do and then the work that you're doing at the Coyle Center. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, granted, I didn't speak much during this session and it's because I, um, I truly um, wanted to hear your experience and, uh, and Hal's experience because, you know, him being a community leader and yourself being a practitioner of mental health. Um, I really wanted to understand the kind of complexities and the subtleties around this topic. So thank you for enlightening me. And I hope that the listeners, who get to hear this? Um, share with me in that sentiment of uh, of that enlightenment of just being more educated on this topic, and I think it's something that can go deeper. And and inshallah, when it does, um, you know, we hope to have you back.
2: Barak um, By the way, Nahal had wrote a thesis on uh, medieval um, Islamic uh, medieval like practice of mental health. Uh, in Muslim communities, and uh, and the intersection between that and Islamic law as well. So, uh, you know, n- you know, don't the, Nihal is pretty well educated in this in this area.
0: This is actually part. Yeah, of I have it. a copy of his uh, of that <laughs> work. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah.
1: Jazakallah khair. This yeah. has been Faith in Fine Print, with your co-host Nihal Khan and Alman Nasrat. This has been real. Thank you for listening.
0: As-salamu alaykum.